Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Matthew Bianco and Andrea Lipinski. Andrea, thank you for being here as you suffer through the fog in your in your head and body. We appreciate you being here. Um, if Andrea, mic goes off, it's cause, probably because she's trying to to save you all from <laughs> from hearing all that. But we appreciate her being here. And Matt, happy birthday! We're recording on your birthday. It will not be the, your birthday when people hear this, but Happy birthday to Thanks. Mr. Dr. Matt Bianco. Thanks for being here, guys. Well, it's Q&A time. We've we got through the three plays that are sometimes, but not always, referred to as Sophocles 1, but that deal with Oedipus and, and that, that cycle of plays. So it's time for question and answer. We got questions from two folks this time, so we're up from one person last time. But again, we got multiple mm. questions, so we're, we're good to go. Hey, if we keep doubling... I'm just going to go back and forth. I'm going to be like, well, Tanya asked and Joy asked and there we, then we'll, be, we'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll start out with with one of uh, Tanya's questions. Who is the chorus? Who's the chorus? I think we delved into that a little bit and maybe it's but if we want to address that again um, here as we kind of cover all three plays. So in the text that I read, you know, in the beginning, like when it says Antigone, daughter and half sister of Oedipus. Ismene, sister of Antigone. Chorus. Mine tells me that the chorus is for the play Antigone, the elders of Thebes. But I'm wondering, do different translators do that differently? Should I look to see what mine says? No. (laughs) (laughs) No one cares, Matt. (laughs) Um, Well, that's what it says for Antigone. For right, um, Oedipus Tyrannus, it says the same. Elders of Thebes. It wouldn't be that in Oedipus at Colonus because we're not in Thebes. So that would seem unlikely. Mm-hmm. And mine just says elders for Oedipus at Colonus. Probably the elders of Athens. So mm-hmm. mine, has that inf- mine has that information like before the text because each of, for each play for me, it has the list of list of characters and, mm-hmm. and like with a, a name and like a short expression of who, who that person is. And it has that same thing with the course, the, the Theban elders for, for Antigone. As well as as well as in uh, Oedipus, uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, um, which seems to make the most sense. I seem to recall Matt that on our first discussion for Oedip- uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, you said something about pay attention to the chorus and who is it. Figure out you know because it depends who it is, what what their role of their voice is. Yeah, and I think maybe this question is speaking to that. Yeah, I because I think the. Um... I mean, in in these plays, I think it's pretty clear that it's rep, it's representing some body of the population mm-hmm. of the city or of mm-hmm. the area, and that they themselves are learning and experiencing the activities of the play at the same time. Right. Um. So I think I like that's what you kind of want to know, like. Are they just another character like any other character, mm. except their their role is to comment on what they've what's happened rather than do something, you know, like mm-hmm. the like, you know, uh, Antigone, does, Antigone does stuff. Right. But yeah. they just comment on what's being done. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some plays, the 
the chorus can be more omniscient and know hmm. uh, uh. everything. Or they can be not not in these in these yeah. they are we, th- that is what they are what we just said but in in other plays I mean even like in you know more going towards Shakespeare and stuff mm-hmm. the um, the chorus whoever they are can be something more something you know wiser and like what they say is actually the correct thing mm-hmm. and they're 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 typically offering correction or judgment on the on the characters and they're right mm-hmm. but that's but not always i mean like that's not every play is not like that like this play is not like that these guys these guys change their mind in this play yeah. you know yeah. um so i think you i think it depends on the I, so that was my point right is that mm-hmm. courses have are used in different ways by okay. different playwrights and in different plays and so you just want to pay attention to what kind of what kind of chorus are you getting in this play? So you know how to evaluate their part, their role, like mm-hmm. their words, you know. Are right. these guys the wise judges, the wise omniscient judges, or are these guys learning everything as it comes, just like I am? Okay. Yeah, like I, can't, I can't remember which one of the three plays now it was, but I felt like, you know, not, not having read these before, that was unclear early on, right? Like, because it mm-hmm. felt like early on that, in one of these, I can't, it might have been Adam and Stranus, that they were they were not they were knowing they were a knowing chorus right in the way they and what they were saying. But then they shifted and started to respond or or reply to directly to the characters more. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I do remember in Adam and Stranus, it felt like at first they were talking to the audience. They were they were like you know singing directly to the audience, and then eventually they they were in reply with you know oedipus or one of the other characters mm. um and the tone shifted to, or not shifted it became more clear i guess that oh they're they're not omniscient they're they're learning information responding to information in in these plays but i probably wouldn't have even been looking for that necessarily if matt hadn't brought up the idea of trying to figure out what kind of course do we have early at the beginning of that first play yeah. um i probably would have gone with whatever i was used to from something else which usually is them just giving you some narrative. My, my my experience primarily with choruses has been they're giving you like bits of the narrative that are in between the scenes almost. You know what I mean? They, they kind of they're kind of bridging the gap between the scenes you see and what's happening between, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe more common in some of the English playwrights. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's, I to me, like if it, I don't know if anybody took it this way, but I didn't. I didn't mean it like figure out who they are allegorically like oh these rep- these guys are really representing the voice of jupiter or whatever you know like i i i, I didn't so i didn't, definitely didn't mean that but what I, I what i meant was something more like you know when you read modern novels that have narrators you have to figure out is this narrator trustworthy or not right mm-hmm. some mod- a lot of modern novels especially more modern novels you know they like to introduce this idea of the untrusted untrustworthy narrator right to kind of complicate things and um and you know to because and also it represents their worldview in some way but the um <laughs> so in the sense that you have to do that when you're reading you have to learn and figure out is my narrator trustworthy or is my narrator representative of an omniscient knowledge mm-hmm. in, in that way you're trying to figure that out about the about the the chorus but not trustworthy or untrustworthy but just knowledgeable or unknowledgeable like not that they're lying to you but that they're 
So they're not untrustworthy in that sense, but just they don't know everything. They're experiencing the play in time like we are, right? Yeah. Right. For any new listeners, that was the Cersei mail truck that it's fan mail yeah. mostly. It's a giant, giant truck full of fan mail for the Cersei employees. <laughs> yeah, if Logan doesn't get it muted out, then you're gonna hear that. <laughs> yeah, that's the truck right behind my window. Yep. All right. Well, let's go over to to some a question from Joy, uh, Joy Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any known sources to indicate what Greeks in the time of Sophocles would have thought about the characters in the play, like Oedipus, Antigone, Crayon? What interpretation would the plays have had in the time and place where they were first performed? Hmm. Oh, I'm not sure how to gather that from the text. I, I, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I suspect that there's probably like scholarly articles or whatever that have done research on that and like found, you know, inscriptions on <laughs> jars that say, I hate Sophocles, this guy sucks. Um, or Oedipus. So, there, yeah, right. So there, there's probably that kind of stuff, like more scholarly out there. But I think just kind of on the general level, you're going to get that idea from, uh, you know, Socrates or Aristotle, right? When they when they reference these guys as as types in their arguments. Oh, right. Um, you know, so Sophocles appears in several Plato's dialogues by name, not like present, but people make references to him. Book one of the Republic um, talks about Sophocles and how... Uh, but it was some guy telling a story of Socrates in his old age. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophocles in his old age? Yeah, Sophocles' old age. Um, and his, well, it's not really apropos to the conversation, but Sophocles' sex drive. The guy was asking <laughs> Sophocles about his sex drive in his old age. Um, and then, uh, you know, so there's references like that. And then, you know, I think there's places where the people will make references to Oedipus and, uh, you know, it's a good example or it's a bad example of whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So like you probably, probably like accessible to us. It's those kinds of things like reading Plato's dialogues, reading Aristotle's, um, you know, ethics or whatever. Right. And then when he uses those people as types, then you get, you get an opinion of what the people of that day mm-hmm. thought. Right. That that's good. When, I think because, not not only is it closer to the source than maybe a, a a more modern scholar, but from my my limited experience with those those references in the in in Plato, um, it's not it's not the case where like Plato is making an argument for how you should feel about Oedipus, right? He's just using it as like a it's an already agreed upon view of this person, right? Of the or the situation that happened or whatever it is. And he's like just like Oedipus, da 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 da, and it, he's using it to argue another point to whoever he's talking to. So that, that kind of indicates to me anyway, that, that this was kind of the shared perception of this, this character yeah. from Sophocles play. Right. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Mm-hmm. It, this question got me curious. Um, I mean, which I don't, we don't, I don't think we have the, 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 the resources to answer right, right now, but it did make me wonder like, whether there, were there, were there existing views of these of these characters these um, before he wrote his plays that he's challenging in any way? You know what I mean? Um, we mm-hmm. talked about how he wrote Antigone first, which would require that his audience kind of knew 
mm-hmm. the general outline of Oedipus's story. Um, so that always makes just makes me wonder, like, was there a view of these characters that he's either reinforcing or challenging that existed from previous versions of the story? So you provoked another question in my mind, Joy. If nothing else, if we can't, if we can't give a good answer, you've you're here at the cure. You're the air. I know. <laughs> um, I, you know that's a good question too, Brandon. Um, that so I'm surprised it came from you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the, my mentor, everybody, my mentor. Uh, <laughs> I just snorted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm myself mean. up. I crack myself up when I'm mean to Brandon. <laughs> the uh, the question is interesting because I think scholars would argue today, and I don't know what I mean by scholars other than like people who publish articles in academic journals, those people. Uh, those people, I think, would say that Sophocles, in this case, um, but any of those guys, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, whatever, that, well, Aristophanes, the comics are a little bit, the comedian, the comic playwrights are a little bit different. But when it comes to the tragedies, I think that most scholars would probably argue that they took an image of a hero or of a, you know, historical figure and that story that was had had an ongoing cultural shared knowledge and then they tweaked it to make some sort of political or cultural political point or some sort of cultural commentary mm-hmm. um, but but they wouldn't have done so in a way that made it unrecognizable like you know, not to not to bring up a sore subject, Brandon, but I just think it's a good analogy for this. Um, what what the argument that you make about Aragorn as he's represented in the book versus as, versus the way he's represented in the in the movies, mm-hmm. that it's like it's a he's a very different kind of hero mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in those two depictions, mm-hmm. and. Um, to, to the point where he's almost unrecognizable as the real Aragorn. He's a different, almost a completely different Aragorn. And I don't think that they were doing that kind of stuff to the plays. Like, I don't okay. think Sophocles mm-hmm. is making a completely different Oedipus Rex than the one that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. So he's not, he's not, you know, he's not lionizing him or he's not or the opposite. You know, he's just, he's giving us the Oedipus that everybody knows, but then there might be elements to the story and the way it unfolds that kind of make some sort of cultural commentary or political point. I don't know if the cultural commentary, political point, part of the argument is true. I, I think that that's something that scholars say, and I don't know how much of that is them reading what we would do with storytelling back and kind of saying that they must have been doing that too because mm-hmm. whatever, but... Yeah, uh, probably something like that. I, I I think what is interesting though is, um, like there's certain things that all of these guys believed. The Greeks, mm-hmm. they all believed or they all felt about these heroes because it was how it was passed on to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I don't I don't think you get a lot of debate about whether Achilles was the hero 
of the Iliad or whether Odysseus was heroic among um, the Greeks, among the Greeks right. in the Odyssey. What you do get is a difference of who, which of the two is greater. Mm. Like they disagree on whether Achilles is the better of the two or Odysseus is the better of the two. Like if we're going to be Greeks, which one should we imitate the most? They argue about that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but they don't argue about whether Achilles was a good guy. It'd be like us arguing about should you be a Washington or a Lincoln, right? Like, which, right, right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's Except we that, do argue about whether Washington was a good guy, and we do argue about whether, yeah, but only, but only like guy. in the last thirty or forty years, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah. the South yeah. may have been arguing about Lincoln longer than that, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> um, the that's that's interesting because you said. You know, they might not have been making a political point, even that's what we would do. And I think we talked a little bit previously about is it, you know, there's the there's the there's the idea that out there that you rejected that that it's it's propaganda to prop up, you know, like why Athens is so great, right? Um but but it, but we talked about it. it might be more along the lines of highlighting for them the kinds of things to do and not do that lead to someplace being great, that lead to good things happening for those around you, um, for, for your city state, whatever it may be. And we've danced around a little bit, this idea of what it means, uh, which leads me into to one of Tanya's next questions, what it means for something to be faded or to be predict uh, to be predicted by these oracles or, um, what's the, how, how locked in is that prediction, right? Is how inescapable is it? Um, and it's possible he's. We don't. I mean, it's maybe it's possible that he's, he's, he's provoking that question, right? Like, how much is decided by the fate, and how much can you alter with if you if you act wisely instead of rashly? Um, so Tanya asked, you know, what what is fate, or what are the fates? Um, and I don't know if she's just asking broadly in the Greek culture, or if she's asking more specifically in this in these plays. But probably we can come at it from both both ways. Mm. I mean, to some degree within these plays, I'll, I'll start us there. Um, somebody believes, more than one somebody believes that whatever the fates say can be changed, can be altered by my decisions, by my choices. Yeah. Right. So is that a cultural belief? Um, like everybody in the culture believes it? Or is that the fool believes it? And mm. let me with this play show you how you can't get away from what the fates say. I'm not sure which way the play is trying to go there, you know, Sophocles. Um. Yeah. And and I think that's right. I think that, I think that the play might be wrestling with that. Like there are people who think it can be thwarted. There are people who think it cannot. There are people who, you know, when it doesn't get thwarted, whatever, whatever, just, you know, what you just said. And then, and then the second, the other side of that coin is I think that there's, a discussion going on within the play. Now, I'm not saying, I don't know that I'm, argue, I would argue that that's the purpose of the play, but, right. um, but it's happening in the play for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think there's another side of the other side of that coin is, and when it does happen, when fate does happen, mm-hmm. who's responsible, you or fate. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so I think like to me in, in Oedipus Tyrannus, it seems like the fate may have been avoidable and he was just idiotic about it. Right. Um, 
but then there were different people viewed different things. But then when you get to Oedipus at Colonus, it's more like he's kind of blaming the fates for it all and that he did do all the right things. And then this, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to remember now, but um, that, there seemed to be some sense of that, right? That, that, that there was, that, that was part of the argument being made by the, by one or more of the characters in those two plays. Right. Mm-hmm. Not, not that there were other characters arguing the opposites of those, but or representing the opposites of those in some way, but yeah. And well, I'm thinking in Oedipus Colonus, uh, so a man who's been cursed per se, right? Uh, he's going to murder his father, marry his mother. Like that sounds like a cursed man to me. Uh, there's a blessing that comes with whoever inters his body. Mm-hmm. So that I find that interesting, and, that, and we come to know that later, right? In that play, so that's been fated. Um, then when we get to Antigone, what's what is it there? Um, she, she's the only one who says, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm right, forgive them kind of a thing, you know? Um, And if they're wrong, um, do unto them likewise. This, that, this is where it's, it's, well, it's interesting to know what the audience knows when Antigone is written, because Mm. if you read the plays chronologically, like we did, yeah, you know that some of what happens in Antigone, well, not necessarily what happens to Antigone, but the fact that that Crayon's gonna kingdom isn't gonna last is also faded in Oedipus at Colonus, right? Like the two brothers are gonna kill each other off, and Crayon's mm-hmm. gonna be cursed too because he's not getting the body either. Right. Um, the the specifics of how that's gonna play out doesn't isn't said necessarily, but he's his his throne is not going to endure his sons are not going to inherit you know all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um so then we're then we're faced with the same question again when we get to antigone could he have thwarted that with more wisdom um uh instead of what he did or was it st- or was he stuck with it once once the decisions were made in the previous play um and so but 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 the audience for Antigone would have had to know some of that information already for that to, for that to for that to play into how you see that play. If you don't have the information, there's not as big an element of things being faded before he makes some of his choices. He does get cursed by Antigone once he's once he's uh, uh, passed judgment on her. Uh, at that point, he gets a curse from her. Um, but at that point, it's more, Without the previous information, it's, it seems more clear cut that well he made bad choices, and someone cursed him, um, and the gods the gods honored that curse because Antigone was doing the right thing by burying the body, right? Yes, yeah. So yeah, that's that's a that one threads differently depending on how much the audience yeah. knew um, prior to that Antigone being written. It's an interesting comparison because I mean to think about that, right? Because being cursed is not the same thing as being fated. Right, right. Right, because right. a fate is something the fates decide. Mm-hmm. Cur- a curse is something a human decides. Yeah. <laughs> um and and that the that the gods, you know, can choose to honor or not honor a curse is kind of fascinating. But then of course it makes you wonder like to what extent was that fated and the curse is just the expression of fate. Right. Without the cursor knowing it, you know. Yeah. 
So there you go. Clear, clear as mud, Tanya, what fate and the fates are in all of ancient Greece. Uh, this is the only thing I would add, which I, I probably said on the first episode okay. uh, for Sophocles, is anybody who tells you that there's this like universal understanding of what fate is amongst the Greeks or the Romans is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not. The, the, this, this trilogy shows that it was disputed by people. Right. And, 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 and if, if this play is being put on show to a group of Athenians, you know, to, to generations of Athenians that all thought fate was unthwartable or mm-hmm. whatever, and then it's presenting characters who don't think that those people would, those characters would be oddities. Like it wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't make sense to the Athenians, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, um, it's uh, it's much more common amongst the Greeks and the Romans that that there are differing views on what the fates are, the power of the fates, the authority of the fates, and how far it can go, um, and even whether it's intended to be unthwartable or whatever, right? Like this is what's going to happen to you unless things change, kind of a thing, right? Like mm-hmm. like Jonah going to Nineveh and saying, you're all going to be destroyed. He did, if you read the read that book again, at no point does Jonah say, you're all going to be destroyed unless you repent. Right. He never actually gives him gives <laughs> them an out. He just says, you're going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And then the king's like, oh, man, well, let's repent. I got an idea. Let's repent. And then they repent and the city's not destroyed. I mean, it is, you know, later by the Assyrians, but, uh, or Babylonians or whoever, but the, um, but it's not destroyed by God in that time, at that time, you know? And um, so, you know, to what extent is fate like that? Right. And I think there probably are people who think that way, think of fate that way. Mm -hmm. Like I can thwart fate by repenting. Or by being wise or whatever, right, you right, know, right. not, yeah. Well, that's why I wonder if Sophocles is uh, taking that wrestling that's happening amongst the people and portraying it in these plays. Mm-hmm. Knowing that that's his audience, that there isn't a clear agreement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, and for me, he, at least when I read these, he seems to be arguing for some humility. Like that's your... That seems to be your only saving grace is to have some kind of humility um, mm-hmm. uh, in the face of fate or, or anything else. So, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, or know what's right. I mean, know what's right and do it right. Like, like uh, the king in in, in Colonus and um, and Antigone, right? Like, mm-hmm. and Antigone seems willing to do what's right and accept accept the accept the the worldly consequences. So. Okay, this uh, this m- might uh, since we're talking about you know there's not a universal view of this Matt you uh, you brought up across other works we get from ancient Greece and, and things like that. Um, Joy asked, "Do we know when these plays are set? Like the actual time frame of the plays?" Uh, says Tiresias is still alive, so it must be prior to the Odyssey since he's in the underworld to give Odysseus advice at that point. But do we know at what time period in history Sophocles is setting these stories? Mm. I assume that that's a real king in Athens. Uh, Perseus? Uh, um, Theseus? Perseus? 
I know. Yeah, Theseus. Theseus. Right. And I think you mentioned this would be after he is he he uh, fights the Minotaur, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, because his father is king before when he goes to fight the Minotaur. The, his father is the king of Athens. Okay. And then when he comes back from fighting the Minotaur, he becomes king of Athens. His dad dies. Sad story, actually, but it's not part of that story. Hmm. Do you know it? You probably know it, Andrea. The part that's in Familia Romana? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. They have, he took the ship of, you know, every every four years or whatever, they had to take a ship of virgins to, of Athenian virgins to Crete to feed the Minotaur. And um, and so then one year he's like, I'm going to take him. But when I get there, I'm going to go and kill the Minotaur. And but the, 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 the tradition had become that they would they would use a black sail on the ship as it was leaving as a sorrow. Right. That we're sacrificing these these virgins. But then when they. And then they would come back, but he had made a deal with his father that he would change the sail to a white sail when he came back if he survived. But if he died, he would leave it black so his father would know. And then on his way back, he forgot to change the sail. And so when the ship came into view of his father, who was standing up on a rock on the edge of the sea, um, look at, you know, looking out, yeah, and yeah. saw the black sail. And then in sadness, grief threw himself mm. from the cliff or whatever and died no. um and the sea is named after him so no because that's what greeks do and then <laughs> um same thing as the sea of icarus right is it whatever is the same thing anyways um he uh yeah so he died and so then when when um theseus got back then he you know he became a king because he was next in line um so then I've always wondered, did he purposely not change the sails so that his father would kill himself so that he could, he could become king? But that seems kind of dark. Maybe maybe um, he he uh, learned from his foolishness and oversight to be more wise and, and thoughtful about his actions. And that's why he's so good in this play as the king. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't to answer your question. I don't know dates joy well enough. Like for me, ancient Greece, I don't even know how long that time period is um but it's in my head i can't see the timeline well but it put it would put us after that right it would be after the the minotaur um and you're right i think you know before the odyssey um obviously since he's in the underworld um, yeah that's the extent of my timeline knowledge of greece and rome though yeah like i don't know where how, does but, it fall with respect to the odyssey <laughs> where does it, it fall with respect to jesus i mean <laughs> do we know from the odyssey Who's which king is coming from Athens? I can't remember. Like when they list all the or not the Odyssey in the um the Iliad, they list all the ships and heads. Mm-hmm. Which one who's from Athens? I don't I don't recall. So it, it would be the time period between that guy and Theseus. That's 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 how much before the Odyssey it was. Or before yeah. the Iliad it was. Um so well, and I don't know, am I just silly to think that this Tiresias doesn't have to be the exact same one? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I mean, it's possible. No, you're right. It's not. You're not silly to think that. It is possible that there is two different Tiresias. More than one wise man named Tiresias. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I think, yeah, I think, it, I mean, but in this case, I, they're they're known to be the same person. Or I mean, right here in the Cersei Institute, we have more than one Matthew, you know. Yeah. And more than one Andrew. And Yeah. <laughs> yes. And more than one Alec. <laughs> Alex. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No. No. We try to avoid things like the lesser and the greater around the office, but you know, depends on the day. And, it, and for me, I have two bucks because my father-in-law's buck, and then oh yeah, our buck, and yes. So when I tell dinner, when I tell stories at the dinner table, my father's always like, wait, what? Why yeah. are you talking? Yeah. Oh, you're not talking about me. You're talking about that guy from your work. (laughs) Yes. So that's that's the best we can do. It's it's however made kings before the king in Iliad is where we are. Is the Tiresias in the Odyssey still blind? I don't remember. Is he going to sight back in Hades? Or is he still blind? Wait, I forgot how Tiresias, how does he end up blind? He's blind in the in the place we just read. No, Oedipus is. You so mean, is Tiresias. So is Tiresias. The I completely missed the that. Prophet. Oh, yeah. the prophet. I'm thinking of the prophet. Why did I say Tiresias? I meant Theseus. You meant Theseus. That's who you Sorry. were thinking about. The king. But that's a good question, though. Is he still blind in the in the? Yeah, in the I can't remember. Sorry, I was, I was still on the kings. Like my my names were mixing up there. Yeah. Huh. That's a really good question. Now I'm going to be looking for that next time I read the Odyssey. If he's not blind, then maybe you're right, Andrea, that it's two separate Tiresi, Tiresii. <laughs> um, if he, or or right. it just means that you get your sight back when you go to Hades. Right. You get your body gets better in hell? Even though you're a shade and you can't hug anyone? Right. Know. Yeah. I, I, I looked it up because I got too curious. It's uh, Theseus would have been king about 160 years before, before the king. I'm not going to be able to say his name right. Erechtheus is which is the one in the Iliad. So 160 years before the Iliad. Yeah. Roughly. So 170 years before the Odyssey. He was born 160 (laughs) years before that, before that king. So I don't know when their kingships started, but. He was born 160 years before that king, so about a century and a half is a good good estimate. Where we are yeah. in the timeline, assuming they're not playing with the timeline, so in the plays, <laughs> which Shakespeare does all the time. So, um, all right. Um, so Tanya had a question, or she at least saw echoes of. Samson and the Delilah, I think, primarily around the the issues of blindness. Um, that's not something that jumped to mind for me when I was reading. Did either of you think of that at all or have some thoughts on that or any other kind of connections to blindness stories, I guess? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I was comparing how uh, Tiresias is the blind seer. Mm-hmm. I remember and that. Oedipus can see and blinds himself. And Creon, it it appears we go in timeline order, right? That in the that he can see and then he can't, 
but then he can see again. Yeah. 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 For one play, he can see. For one and a half plays, he can't see. Right. And then for a half play, he can see again. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a little bit about um, about Oedipus, you know, when we we come to him blind and having been kind of in exile for several years, that there's been a lot of suffering. And and it's at that point that he has grown in in wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm struck by that a little bit that, you know, Samson's can come off as kind of foolish, right? Delilah keeps trying to trick him and he keeps giving her answers anyway. Um, he's kind of, maybe there's some pride in there for him that, that once he's blind um, is gone and he asks for the strength just one more time to smite God's enemies. Um, so that makes you think of other, just kind of thinking along other, other times where there's a, there's a trait of sight for, knowledge or, or 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 wisdom you know got odin takes out he gets one eye gives up one eye for wisdom mm. so so then in that way is uh, samson more like oedipus out of the three in our plays that i just mentioned and that he has physical sight in the beginning but he's not seeing what mm-hmm. his wife is doing and then he loses his sight and then he's able to see like oedipus that- yeah, there's yeah, there's a humbling there, and mm-hmm. he fi- he finishes well, right? They both they both they both finish well. Mm-hmm. That's that's the that's what jumped out to me when she asked that question. But does that make does that make um, his wife a Delilah, or is that not part of the comparison? Oedipus's well, wife. Oedipus's wife. Oedipus's wife. Yeah. Mm. Does she have a Delilah type role or? It so probably help depends me to find on, Delilah's role to weaken him. To yeah, I mean she's selling him out to the Philistines, right? Right. Yeah. So that I maybe forget. depends on how you read um, how how early his wife mother mm-hmm. figures out what's going on, right? That yeah, that the prophecy is is coming true. Like we talked about that a little bit during that play, but. Um, mm-hmm how yeah it's it that's as soon as she figures it out she wants to back away yeah yeah and forget it hide it bury it right don't don't rock the boat keep the lie you know lock it up right she's gonna live like that um but prior to that okay so uh just her being willing to send off her infant and think that that's going to take care of it. Hmm. That's a harder one for me to judge because I don't know how much say she had in it. Yeah. Oh, right. You know yeah. I mean? when, the, when the king says, I'm doing this, it's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah whereas Especially Delilah. Back... In the ancient world, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, no. But we're talking about Delilah's character being very... Um, uh, those are her choices each time, yeah. Delilah's. Yeah. Whereas you're right about this wife. Yeah. Yeah, I guess when I, yeah, because I think when I read it, I thought that was more the king, since he's the one who's prophesied he's going to be killed, right, by his son. Mm-hmm. And so he's the one trying to get rid of that that kind of threat. Yeah. But that just made me be reading it, and it's a guy too, so who knows? Jocasta, good lord. Thank you. 
You forgot it too. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I, did. Like, I wonder if they noticed that I just keep referring to her as the wife because I can't remember her name. Okay, now I got her name. <laughs> I just uh, didn't even think to try and figure it out. I didn't remember it either, but I wasn't trying to. Uh, I was just trying to figure out what to call him wife, her wife, mother at the same time. All right. Okay. Joy wanted us also to uh, compare. Oedipus, Antigone, and Crayon. In particular, she was talking kind of what you what we what you were saying they would discuss with um, uh, Odysseus and and um, Achilles. She says, "What does each character reveal about what the Greeks thought about the ideal man or woman?" Mm. So, is, do we get some of that from Sophocles the same way we do, or we think we do with Homer? This what is. Yeah, I really like that question, Joy, because like I've wondered, do we get from Sophocles like we do Homer, just the training up of, uh, or like more so, I guess Virgil even, the training up of a society to understand who we are as a people. Like this is our heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I you gotta say, Antigone represents both. Both what? The ideal man and the ideal woman. Oh, huh. really? Like she okay. steps in and plays the part of the man when there's no man to do it, mm-hmm. which makes her an ideal woman, right? That's exactly what the ideal woman should do. But there's no way in that society and in that culture that a woman should have had to stand up to the king. Yeah. Right. Some man should have been doing that and no man would. And then she does. And and in doing so, it becomes both <laughs> the ideal yeah. man and the ideal woman. And she's amazing. And everybody should name their daughters Antigone. Right. And, and if, she's murdered for it. If Goldberry ever does one of those March Madness book, you know, book yeah. fights and Antigone's on there, y'all better be voting for her. <laughs> yeah, she didn't make the last time they had a heroine. She didn't make the list, I don't think. Oh. I don't know. But I, well, I brought up last time, like, you read the Odyssey and you was like, oh, yeah, we should name more little girls Penelope, right? And it's I had the same feeling reading this one. It was mm-hmm. like, that. what a great kind of name legacy to give your kid. Um, your daughter. Uh, and I think you're right. Like, and, and she handles it in a different way, but Penelope's in the same kind of situation where like, there's no man who's telling all these knuckleheads to get out of there because there's no men around to do There literally are no men around to do it. Right. The elders uh, are echoing for a while. Right. Yeah. Point. And so, yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good. We get a little bit of it about CCS, but I don't think we see him long enough and he's not across all three plays and, Mm-hmm. Um, but he seems to be another one that's held up as kind of, uh, do, doing the, what, what one ought to be like. Um, well, he welcomes the stranger mm-hmm. and he welcomes a stranger on a sacred land that nobody should have been on, but this is where that stranger chose. And he asks to be allowed to remain and they honor that. That's a big deal. And then he but he doesn't just welcome, right? He says, I'll, um, I'll protect you. Like that's part of, I guess it's part of the welcome. Um, and so then when somebody comes against him and his daughters, he honors that and goes out after them himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so he, he does, he embodies what the, I, what the agreements are mm-hmm. of the land, right. Of what is right. He, he actually does it. He doesn't just talk about it. I think this is an interesting, this is a, this is a, correct me if I'm wrong, either one of you, but to me, this kind of um, helps illustrate what, what an ideal type is. Right. And uh, so Mm -hmm. in, 
we talk about uh you were talking about uh, odysseus and and achilles being two that then you can de- then they're maybe debated among them well, which is the better of the two right yeah. uh, type of man um and then in theseus has his own other stories where he's not an ideal type necessarily he he maybe makes more mistakes and some of those other, I, don't, I, I don't know the stories well enough to, to say that maybe he is being considered an ideal type in those stories but in this story he's presented to us as a complete man right like he's whatever maturing he had to do to get to this point it's been done and now he's a completed man who does the right thing at the right time when he's supposed to which one is that theseus oh in in this in this play like right he does he makes the right choices all the way along um same for antigone we don't see her having to go through a maturing process in both the plays we get her in, she's that way. Unlike Oedipus and Crayon, who kind of have these arcs that are, you know, well, Crayon's is a is a fall, I guess. He kind of goes from being wiser to being corrupted by the power. And Oedipus goes from being, you know, kind of rash and arrogant to being, uh, gaining wisdom through suffering. Yeah. So... I think Matt, you're probably right on with jumping on Antigone as being ideal for both, and maybe Theseus is another another example of an ideal type um, of man, but and not Oedipus and Crayon. Like they 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 maybe don't in the stories we're given here don't reveal that to us in the same way. Yeah, because because the uh, I mean Theseus from this play from this uh, sequence of plays is i mean it's harder to kind of draw him out as an ideal type just because he's so short right 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 right? yeah um and then and the only the only real problem that he has in the play is depending too much on his name Mm. like you remember there's a scene where he's like all right i'm giving you my protections now i'm leaving Mm. And then, and then Oedipus says, no, no, don't, because these guys are coming and they're going to take, you know, they're going to take me or they're going to take my daughter or whatever. And then Theseus is like, no, no, I forbade it. And no man would dare cross my name. (laughs) And then he leaves and then they do take the curls and then somebody has to go get him and say, ah, you know, so Theseus has to like, Theseus if you just listen to Oedipus at the beginning, then that whole you know thing wouldn't have happened. But but maybe that was the point. We need this to happen. So I think we needed to know. see Theseus go after, you know, go after them. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a reasonable part to question. I think, but also, he like you said, we don't we don't get him for long enough as the same as the other three we were talking about. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think about um, Aeneas, right? Like one of the things he's highly remembered for because it's been portrayed in, by numerous artists is when he's leaving his homeland, holding the hands of his the hand of his son, carrying his father on his back, and his father has their family gods with them. I think about Antigone. Um, she doesn't have children, right? But she honors her father by wandering out into the wilderness with him and caring for him and she um she's the one who wants to care for her brother and do the final rites for him 
all the while knowing that that's the right thing to do for the gods, that 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 law, you know, to obey the law of the gods is higher than the law of man. Yeah. Okay. I don't have anything else to add to that. So I want to move on. Great. This one was interesting to me. This was, this is Joy's, uh, Joy's final question here. She says, Antigone seems to be a very strong female character for a woman who wasn't a goddess. I haven't read very widely in the Greek canon outside of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The only other play I've read so far is Lysistrata by Aristophanes, which was written approximately 30 years after Antigone. The women in the plays seem to have much more autonomy than the women in the epics. Is that a reflection of a change in Greek society? So one, do you accept her premise? <laughs> or do you want to argue her premise? And two, accepting her premise, do you think that reflects a change? So she's seeing that prior to... I think she's specifically comparing the epics to the to these... Well, to these three plays these and then the one other one plays. she's read, which is by Aristophanes, written about 30 years later. Right, so that the women previously were more autonomous than during Homer's presentations. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah. I got, so I don't have the extra play that she has. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> That's a funny one. <laughs> I, for me, it depends on what she means by autonomy. Um, yeah. Because, well, because I've had these arguments about agency with my wife for like six years now in the, in the epics. So mm-hmm. um, uh, how much can or can't they resist the gods but that's a, if if that's a different that's one idea of it i guess because when i look at the plays or the epics even um we don't get that many female characters to investigate too deeply in the iliad just because it's so much there's so much more fight it's so much more about the fighting okay. so and then and then some of the ones we do their autonomy is restricted by the fact they're literally prizes you know uh yeah so there's some of that but like Penelope, I find to have autonomy, but to make it to, she has autonomy, but, but, um, to make decisions, but she's in a very difficult situation. And so she exercises her autonomy, I think, incredibly wisely, uh, very wisely, um, (laughs) to, to keep these, you know, physically stronger and outnumber a group of men who outnumber her at bay. Um, I would say similar things about, um, is it Nausicaa? Nausicaa is the one that finds Odysseus, right? Mm-hmm. She seems to exercise quite a bit of autonomy in making decisions to help this stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, and her mother does a lot. And her mother, yeah. <laughs> uh, like to now, the point where Odysseus is told, go to the mom first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever she says, that's what dad's going to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can see the argument for people mm-hmm. like... Um, Oh, what's Hector's wife's name? Um, I'm drawing a blank. Andromache? Yeah, she's just kind of like, she's, but but again, I don't know if that's just a, a function of her situation. She's stuck within the city walls. She has less power as a person in the, in the society. Um, and then. Or Hector's just a lesser of a man. And then with Helen, when you read both plays, you have to get the sense that uh, there's all kind of thumbs up happening from Matt, um, the Hector one. Um Helen was maybe under some undue influence in the Iliad. We've come to find out, but not until we read the Odyssey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's hard for me to, to necessarily accept the premise they don't have autonomy mm. in the epics. Mm. Um, 
I don't know. We just don't get to see them as much. When we, this, we have an entire play here written about Antigone. Yeah. yeah. She she strikes me very similar to Penelope. Um, and, well, Penelope for the most part, but but Nosco, like they make decisions and will live with the consequences of those decisions. But she's in a situation where there's going to be negative consequences for doing the right thing. Antigone is, and she does it anyway. Yeah, that's the thing for me is that. I mean, and in, in sometimes Antigone has less autonomy because she knows that by doing this, she's going to die. Yeah. She doesn't have the right to act in this way or the man, you know, from man's perspective, she doesn't have the right to act in this way. And she just says, I'm going to exercise it anyways and and then dies. Um, she doesn't have the freedom to act in a different way. She is bound by the law of the gods. Oh, that's a good point too, right? There's this autonomy from two different mm -hmm. levels, right? This, you know, vertically and whatever. So mm -hmm. she has no autonomy from the perspective, from her, the loyalty and the commitments that she has to the gods and to her brother. She has no right. autonomy. Right. And then from Creon's perspective, she has no autonomy. Right. And then she has to obey one or the other, right? And so she obeys the one and it leads to her death. Right. And then, uh, but I mean, you know, Brandon, you just went through the list of autonomy there, you know, in the thing and, and in, in the, in the Odyssey rather, uh, Penelope has just as much autonomy as Telemachus. I mean, he has to operate with just as much wisdom and craftiness mm -hmm. to survive, to survive the suitors, right? Like they're trying to kill him yeah. every time he tries to exert himself in any way. Um, so that, you know, whatever the autonomy he exhibits, you know, she seems she's kind of exhibiting the same autonomy to the same degree, just in, just in her different ways, you know, what's interesting about autonomy is that, is that, you know, we think of autonomy as freedom, but in some sense there is, we don't have autonomy. I mean, we only have autonomy to do the right thing. The, the, dif the, the, di the, the difference in autonomy from our perspective is who's going to enforce it. Right. If is 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 man gonna you know a human being gonna going to enforce it or is natural law, for lack of a better you know term, gonna enforce it, or is you know divine justice, divine judgment gonna enforce it? But any autonomous act that violates nature is going to be enforced, and then some autonomous acts that violate you know man's rules rather than in order to conform with nature might be enforced by man, like in the case with Creon and, and Antigone, right? See, you see the distinction I'm making there. So um, the, the autonomy is only ever to act. No, no human being has autonomy to act except with respect to what's right. It's just a matter of when and how it will be enforced. Received, responded to. Yeah. yeah. Like I, mean, I might I get away with... You know, being autonomous and lying, you know, being a compulsive liar, I might get away with that for 15 years before, you know, look, look at me being autonomous, telling lies for 15 straight years, right? But then at some point, it's going to be figured out and I'm, it's going to be enforced, right? It's going to be punished or whatever. And that's where I wonder where the fates come in. <laughs> We're not going there now. That's not the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's if you can if they if you have an ability to make a choice and make a decision 
and deal with those consequences. There's there's a level of autonomy. The only difference I could I can think of if you're talking about autonomy, if you're if you're like setting aside what may or may not happen with the gods, which is kind of hard to do in the ancient Greek stories of any kind, and you're saying that you only really have autonomy if you are at the level to make the choice and you can do whatever you want. Then that's basically only the king, right? And that and and in none of these stories do the women have that kind of autonomy. The really even even Jocasta doesn't have that in between her first husband dying and marrying Oedipus, from what I can tell. So in that sense, there's not more or less autonomy for the women in between the epics and the um plays. and these plays, yeah. Yeah. So Thanks for pulling that out. Appreciate the question, Joy. Yeah, this is good. Yeah. These were lots of good questions. It's good because I, I liked it because it made us think about the different characters and mm-hmm. kind of say, wait, do they have autonomy? Do they not have autonomy? What do we yeah. have autonomy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, yeah. 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 This argument typically comes up stronger in our household when we're talking about the Aeneid. So that's not the Greeks. So that's that's the Romans. And whether the gods force people to act certain ways, to actually remove their agency. But that's a yeah. different debate for a different time. Um, <laughs> Not for Matt's birthday day. That's right. Well, Matt and I are probably more on the same side than people in my house and me. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just a, a funny side note, matter of note, is that people who think people use the argument that the gods force people to do things they don't want to do, like automatons but only ever to defend the characters they like. And they never accept that as a defense for the characters they do not like. So, <laughs> well, the gods made them do it, right? Yeah, right. so if you are if you love Dido, then the gods made Dido act that way, yeah. but, that, but, but no god made Aeneas act Aeneas. a certain way. There's no defense for him there. But right. if you're a fan of Aeneas, then, well, the gods made Aeneas do that, and... And there's no defense on Dido for that, you know? So it's just yeah. kind of funny to me. That's like both sides do it. Yeah. Well, we we touched on this a little bit um, throughout, uh, but we did get another question about, or maybe they're just wondering now, as we've gone through all three plays, do we have a bit better understanding or view of what um, is meant by a tyrant or tyrannus, uh, either then or now? Is that something that you have any additional thoughts on? Um, just, just generally, or you mean in this play? Uh, I mean, maybe if, if there's anything you've learned from this play or, but generally if you have other thoughts, the question was, uh, not super specific. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Cause I, to, to me, it's still the same understanding, right? A tire, a tyrannus is a king who comes into authority by some means other than the hereditary, you know, handing down and or whatever, something like that. And that 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 is neutral. It's a neutral term much of the time. But at some point, like the kings that were bad kings were more often tyrant kings Mm -hmm. than they were uh, Basileus kings. And and therefore tyrant came to be a negative term because the negative kings typically mm-hmm. were those ones. So the uh mm-hmm. so you know it was taking by hubris, right? By pride. Somebody who's taking over rather than being trained um, yeah. to to be handed to help maintain this kingdom. 
Right. But yeah. but it's neutral because that not every not every single one of them were bad kings. Okay. You know, so it's it's neutral originally, but then it ends up having a negative association, a negative connotation because of that association over time. So, you yeah. know, in in the Republic, Socrates uses the word king. I, I don't know what the Greek word is there. I don't know if it's a monarch or basileus. It's probably basileus, but he uses the word that word to describe a good king, the aristocratic ruler, and then he uses tyrannus for the, the tyrant ruler. Yeah, the, the negatively tyrant ruler. So he's our in that one. He's using the two different words to to distinguish the positive and the negative connotation. The character of them, not the mode of ascension. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, because earlier that by the four, you know, yeah. late three, late three hundreds, yeah, or early three hundred, whatever the three nineties, three eighties, you know, in that area. Mm-hmm. Now, sorry, Plato is Plato writes that Socrates would have been doing that in the four hundreds. Yeah. So you're talking about, but you're still talking about. Well, I guess not when not when Socrates wrote the play. Socrates wrote the plays closer to that time period, but the the characters existed a thousand years before that, right? You're talking about. Uh, 1200s uh, uh, BC for for um, Theseus and others. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, in the in the the dialogue that Plato writes in the 300s, which yeah. Socrates would have given in the 400s, um, that dialogue uses the two words: one's positive, one's negative. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but if, in the play we're reading, like long before that. Right. It well, was more neutral. Right. Because even if Sophocles is writing closer to Socrates' time, if the title Oedipus Tyrannus is what he's been na- known as passed down for a thousand years, that's just his name, right? He's Oedipus right, Tyrannus. Right. Oh, right, right. right? Yeah. 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 So it's it's come it's still coming to be known the way the way it's used by Plato. I mean, maybe and maybe it's Plato's usage or Socrates' usage that helps kind of cement that shift, right? To because because the Republic is such a such a massive work that's lasted you know through through history so yeah um, well we're tossing yeah we are running short on time and I don't but I will do a, a small plug um, on that question uh, we got we have something coming out that uh, hopefully in the next few months here um, that de- wrestles with that a little bit um, actually called the tyrant um, from Scott and David Hicks uh, examining in particular uh, Julius Caesar um, from the lens of, of Plutarch and the lens of Shakespeare and how even the view of that one particular tyrant um, shifted and, and was seen uh, throughout, throughout time. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, if you, if you get the Cersei emails um, it'll, it'll be in there and hopefully be out here in the next few weeks or not, sorry, next few months be in from the printers. Exciting. Uh, well, Matt and Andrea, thank you for joining me again. Um, I know Matt, you've got to, you've got to run to some other things. We will be picking up. I think we mentioned last time uh, with Ovid uh, next time. Uh, we're going to do a couple selections. We'll start off with kind of the introductory section, which is a few short sections kind of we're going to put together. It's the um, creation of the world through the Iron Age. If When you get metamorphosis, you'll see it's kind of, it's verse that just kind of keeps going um, with different, with different stories. But um, 
but those kind of give us an introduction to what he was doing uh, to that to that very first part. And we'll start there. Uh, we'll he fired. Back. He fired Andrea to me. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. We got some replacements coming in, so we'll, we didn't we'll do a good enough job, Matt. Yeah. But we had great discussions on this book. I thought so too. Has nothing to do with the fact that y'all are unavailable or anything like that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll bring in a couple of new voices or a couple of other voices from uh, the Cersei offices, um, and and talk about some selections from Ovid for the next uh, four or five weeks, and do some Q and A on those as well. We'll post that schedule of all those stories too. Uh, it'll have that out in the newsletter and everything. So we should have we should have said you have to do non-classics when other people <laughs> only, only andrea and i get to do the classics right perfect okay i'll bring in well we're not doing all of Ovid, so we can always circle back on some more of it in the future so that's fair okay very that's generous of you. take some of these longer works in chunks and so all right well thank you again and thank you all for joining us um for overdue classics we will see you next week <laughs> <laughs>